16. Focusing mainly on two verses in the middle of this passage, verses 18 and 19. But we'll read chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. God gives us our word, God gives us his word for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. The grass withers flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Then on page 83, the back of the blue hymnal, we find article 28. Article 28, everyone is bound to join himself to the true church. I'll read this if you'd like to follow along. Our Confession of Faith, Article 28. We believe, since this holy congregation is an assembly of those who are saved, and outside of it there is no salvation, that no person of whatsoever state or condition he may be ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself, but that all men are in duty bound to join and unite themselves with it, maintaining the unity of the church, submitting themselves to the doctrine and discipline thereof, bowing their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and as mutual mutual members of the same body, serving to the edification of the brethren, according to the talents God has given them. And that this may be the more effectually observed, it is the duty of all believers, according to the word of God, to separate themselves from all those who do not belong to the church, and to join themselves to this congregation, wheresoever God has established it. Even though the magistrates and edicts of princes were against it, yea, though they should suffer death or any other corporal punishment, therefore all those who separate themselves from the same or do not join themselves to it act contrary to the ordinance of God. When the Reformation was fresh in Europe, The Roman emperor outlawed the teachings of men like Martin Luther from the land that we now call the Netherlands. Um, 
People may, in history books, call it the lowlands at that point in the 1500s. And that provides the, the, the context, or the beginnings of the context anyways, for our confession of faith, the Belgian Confession, written by Guy Debray. He wrote it as an attempt to, to vindicate the Calvinist teachings as historical Christianity in the midst of, of persecutions from the Roman Empire, from Spain, um, from, from various uh, governments rulers. Legend has it that Debray even uh, bound a copy of this confession to a a brick and and lofted it over uh, the wall of a palace in hopes that someone would read it and would see that indeed this is not cutting out ground for a a new religion, but it it rather is affirming the historic doctrine of Christianity. It's Trinitarian, it's it's rooted in the work of Christ, um, really the Reformation was a back-to-the-sources kind of movement. Let's, let's figure out what the early church was doing. Let's rediscover the doctrine of the early church. That is who we are. That is what uh, we want to be. Debray, the, the author then, hoped that this document could possibly diffuse tensions. Certainly would have believed that it was in the, the uh, ability of God to do so. He didn't want to fan the flame of them. But as we know, he ended up martyred for the faith, for penning par- partially for penning this confession, really the only author of a a confession, uh, to be martyred for doing so. Uh, But even though he wanted this to be perhaps a peacemaking document, there are distinct places where the the words cut sharply, and uh, this is one of those places. Lines in the sand need to be drawn, and the confession, our confession of faith does draw distinct lines in the sand around the issue of the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, because the context surrounding this is, of course, at that time, people were going to the Word of God and making judgments and saying, this is the true church and this is not the true church. Whoever is finding themselves in accord with the Word of God and establishing their church on that basis, that is the true church of Jesus Christ. If it has strayed from the Word of God, that is not the true church of of Jesus Christ. So the duty of, of Christians, then and indeed of all people in the world, would be to join that which is true, the church which is true. This was not to be a process that was to to, uh, uncover some kind of secret knowledge, but rather where is the clear opening up of God's word and the truth being done? It's very simple. And uh, the next article deals extensively with that question, Article 29. What are the marks of the church? How do you go about making these kinds of tough decisions? Uh, Tonight's article simply says that churches can err. Churches can be wrong. And when they do, the error must be recognized. It must be dealt with in a, a fitting way. It also deals with the church as a necessary part of the Christian life. Necessary back then for different reasons, necessary, and some of the same reasons, necessary for us today in some different reasons and many of the same reasons. Ultimately, we cannot avoid the church. We cannot keep distant from it. Rather, we are to join ourselves to it. We fast forward from uh, Guy de Bray in the 16th century to the 19th century in Holland. And what had happened is that the the Dutch Reformed Church, the state church, had become uh, so severely inundated with with modernism and had lost the ability to to train ministers to be effectual, effective ministers. 
and to the point where most who labored in the church were totally beholden to views that, that really had no idea what the authority of God's word was all about, really didn't know how to defend or even to proclaim the Christian faith. And in the 19th century, what ended up happening and how that changed was uh, local churches understood the duty of Christians, understood what the historic faith was all about. And really one of the, one of the amazing things that happened in the first half of the 19th century in Holland was that ministers who had been woefully trained to go out and to become ministers, went to local churches. The local churches opened up their eyes, through the grace of God, opened up their eyes to what the gospel was. And then their hearts were set aflame. And these ministers in these small churches who had been retrained by their own congregations uh, then became uh, intense defenders of orthodoxy. It's from that whole situation that the controversy of 1834 became about, or came about, the secession from the Dutch Reformed Church. And really, that's where we find our roots as the Christian Reformed Church in that, what you call the, the offskiting. Many of the offskiting people came to this country and had a hand in beginning the Christian Reformed Church. What we uh, see from Article 28 is very simply this. A Reformed understanding of the church rooted in Scripture is this. We hold the church as centrally important, but the church's power is not arbitrary, It is rooted in scripture. It's rooted in God's word, no matter what the culture, the age, or other churches might say. The church's authority is central, but it's not arbitrary. It's rooted in God's word, no matter what the culture, the age, or churches might say. Let's take a look at Matthew 16 together. First, we see the necessity of the church. The necessity of the church. There's this very famous interaction between Jesus and Peter. Jesus says that the rock upon which he builds the church is what Peter says. It's, it's Peter's confession. right? And, and there's been a lot of conversation around this passage historically in the church. This is not teaching for a pope. right? This is not what Jesus is saying. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Matthew, in In this interaction, Jesus says, you are Peter, uses the Greek word there, Petros, which is a a small stone. You are Petros, this small stone. And on this, Petra uses a different Greek word, the the feminine form of it, which is a large rock, a a, a big rock. Upon this grand rock, I will build my church. Therefore, if Jesus were wanting to say that Peter is to be some kind of a vicar of Christ, this, uh, uh, this foundational part of the church, this pope of the church, it would make no sense for there to be two different words there, a small stone, his name, and a large rock. So this is not teaching for a pope. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that uh, Peter is, is a forerunner as one who confesses faith in Christ. He is a, an example Uh, to which many, many millions and perhaps billions will be added who confess this true and orthodox faith. Jesus does not need a, a vicar on earth because he has sent a helper, the Holy Spirit, so that as the gospel is proclaimed and the gospel goes forth throughout the world, the church might be built up as men, sinful men, imperfect men, flawed men proclaim this truth. Jesus is talking about building the church here. The word is ecclesia. 
This is the, the, the called out people that we talked about last week. People that are displaced from their sovereignty. Displaced from their ability to define their life. They're called out from that and into the church. Jesus here is talking about his own activity. I will build it. The verb for build is, is tied to the idea of construction. Building a, a home or, or something else. It is making something appear that was not there previously. Everyone loves to, to go and, and find the, or check up on the, the progress of project, right? And many of, many of us would come through the, the parking lot wanting to see how far the, the elevator project had gone. Right? Jesus here is saying that there is going to be an activity of building that he is going to engage in. He will be the builder. The theological issue to mark here is that this is a special activity of God, of Christ himself, that is not promised in all things. Jesus has not promised to build the American Congress in the way that he has promised to build the church. This is a special promise that he has given to his people. All things are, of course, under the sovereignty of God. All things are shaped by his decree. But this is a special act of building the church that Jesus has promised to do. As those who are seeking the truth, and as people who seek the truth in the world, we should ask, where has God promised to act savingly? Where has he promised to do that? And that is where we should go. The answer, of course, is is the church. So the church, you might call it the the sphere of God's activity. This is the, the realm in which God acts to save and to sanctify his people. I've heard the church referred to as the school of Christ, and I think that's a wonderful way of putting it as well. The school of Christ, where we, we grow up in the faith, where we are educated in the faith so that we might be a healthy and thriving Christians. It's where we find the care of Christ for the church. Ephesians 5, verse 29 says this, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. There's a special care uh, that he gives to the church. This is where we go to learn of Christ and be taught of him. So then, as Jesus promises to build the church and this special activity that is particularly defined by the name of Jesus Christ. Of course, as we learned last week, the church stretches back all the way to the beginning of human history, but constituted as the new covenant church under the the realm and the explicit reign and rule of Jesus Christ, it has been brought to this fullest state that it will be uh, up until the second coming of Jesus. That's really the next thing we await, is the, the second coming of the Lord. But uh, because of all these things, this is where the church, as an institution, is where we find uh, the promise of Christ's work and the Holy Spirit's activity as well. This is why the preaching of the word and the sacraments are so important, so indispensable to the Christian life. Because this is where the promised building of Jesus and the activity of the Holy Spirit come together. They come together explicitly in uh, word and sacrament. If you go out looking at mountains, uh, wanting to have God especially work in you, that may indeed happen. You may receive a a spiritual blessing, reminder of, of biblical truths, but God has not promised 
to work in the same way in those kinds of experiences that he has with the preaching of the word and the sacraments, right? The means of grace. That's why as Christians, we attend to the means of grace, which means we sit under the preaching, we observe the sacraments. Why? Because that is where God has promised to act. So one of the, one of the reasons why Reformed people talk about improving your baptism daily There's this lifelong journey of improving, making improvements on your baptism because there's lifelong significance to being a baptized Christian. And the Holy Spirit works through that, works through our observation of the Lord's Supper as well. As I mentioned, the church is the body of Christ. Therefore, he cares for it. That is how the the church is defined in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is uh, those, like we said, who are called out of the world and into the assembly of the righteous. We see in Acts, as the apostles are, are going Uh, from city to city or place to place to proclaim the gospel. We read things like 3,000 or uh, however many are added to their number, meaning there was some way that they were keeping track of these things, added to their number. The church as an institution is distinct in the world. It exists under elders and deacons, and Christians are called to submit to the discipline of the church. Scripture is sufficient to define the church. If we think that we need to go elsewhere to define the church, then what we are doing is we're attacking the sufficiency of Scripture. God has given in his word all things that we need for faith and life and godliness as Christians in the church. Therefore, that is what we need. Sola Scriptura. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 16 that the church is invincible ultimately and it is eternal Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. This idea of the gates of Hades signifies one of two things. It could be talking about the power of Satan and hell and all that stands opposed to God. Right? That's not going to overturn the church. The, the darkest spiritual powers will not vanquish it. Or it could mean simply the power of death. So whichever one Jesus means, the power of death or the darkest, most powerful forces of evil, neither of of those things are going to extinguish the church in the world before Christ comes back. So he gives this wonderful promise, which is what? It's that the church cannot fail no matter what stands against it. Why? Because this is the place where, this is the institution where God is working out his saving purposes. He's given that special promise to it. The church will not fail and it will not crumble before Christ comes again. We may say that human history only continues because of the church, because of God's desire to save. After the fall, what kept human history going? The fact that Jesus or that God promised to Adam and Eve that he would send a redeemer. Jesus gives us this wonderful promise. The church is also singularly given the authority of the keys, the keys of the kingdom, as Jesus says in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, what do keys do? Really simple, right? They lock and they unlock. 
If someone gives you the keys to their house, what are they saying? They're saying that they're giving you the authority to open uh, the house, to go in, to go out, and to lock it back up. It's a, a delegation of authority. That authority is not given to, to everyone. Right? I, don't, I don't give keys to my friend, and I'm implicitly saying that I'm giving the authority of those, those keys to all my friends. I'm giving it to that one friend. So the church, in what Jesus is saying here in, in Matthew chapter 16, the church, as it exists, defined in Scripture, under the authority of elders and deacons, gathered community of believers who confess the true faith, who open up God's word, who submit to the doctrine and the discipline thereof. This is the institution that has the authority to both open and shut the kingdom. To open it up and to shut it. The preaching of the gospel opens the doors to heaven. Proclaims to all of the world. And the church is to proclaim it to all of the world. Liberally, we are to proclaim the gospel to the world. To open the kingdom and say salvation can be had full and free in Jesus Christ. He is a sufficient savior to save you from your sin, turn from your sin, repent, and believe in the work of Jesus Christ. In that work, the church knows no one who is saved and not part of the church. Submitting to the discipline, then, of the church, we come under, as the confession says, the yoke of Christ, which involves authority that has been delegated to those who govern the church. And church discipline is that which shuts the kingdom of God. If people endure and continue in unrepentant sin, if people refuse to leave grievous errors, then the church goes through the process of church discipline to what? To shut the kingdom of God to those people. The church and the church only has the authority of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So in summary, uh, the church is the only place where God directly promises his saving and his sanctifying work. To neglect the church is to ignore God's word. There is no such thing as a a Christian in the Bible who does not belong to the church. Imagine that. You go through the New Testament, you read Acts, and you you read all of the epistles. It's assumed that Christians will be a part of the church. This realization confronts the, the false piety that we see in our day of the, the no church mentality. Right? I love Jesus, but not the church. I, I, I'm not a, I can't be a part of the church. I love the Lord, and that's as far as it goes. To do such a thing is to ignore what God says in his word. This is the only institution that is promised to endure beyond death. It's the only thing that will not um, be defeated before Christ's coming. It's the only institution on earth that can open heaven to sinners. For all of these things, we see why the confession tells us that we are bound to join the church. This is where God works. This is where God saves. This is where God has endowed the authority to direct our lives, to sanctify us in the truth. That's why the confession says, no person in whatsoever state ought to withdraw from it. The context in which the the confession was written in the 16th century, there were people who were uh, involving themselves in what you might call watchful waiting. They were wanting to see who's going to come out on top of all of these religious wars and battles, right? Is it going to be the Roman Catholic Church? Is it going to be this new thing, the Reformed Church? 
And ultimately, what our confession is saying, it doesn't matter who wins these, these, these battles on earth, right? It doesn't matter who wins. What matters is joining yourself to the true church. You can't wait and see who's going to be victorious so that you can align yourselves with the ones who have power. You're called to align yourself with the truth. The wider world context of today, many people uh, who are involved in the work of missions will will say, if you go to places where there's hostility towards the Christian church, um, you can tell people about Jesus, but don't tell them that they need to join the church. And this is something that, you, uh, that we call the insider movement in, in the Muslim world. That uh, People go to try to share Jesus with Muslims and say, you can stay in your mosque. Right? You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to join the church uh, because it would be too dangerous for you. That's false teaching and it's, it's dangerous. Um, it's a distortion of faith alone. Right? We're saved by faith alone, but uh, in the scriptures, God tells us he directs us what we are to do with our lives yes we're saved by grace alone through faith alone and we praise God for it it doesn't allow us to neglect God's word in uh, as it comes to the church context today that we find in our world um, just give me Jesus right I I love Jesus but I I don't like his church this sounds pious to say this kind of thing. It sounds spiritual, but you can't love Jesus when you neglect his bride. The church is the bride of Christ, and you can't love Jesus and neglect his bride. My father has a a long fuse, um, very, very, very long fuse that I often tested when I was growing up. I've only seen him intensely angry uh, a couple of times, but I know that if you want to shorten that fuse quite a bit, say something about his bride and uh, watch how quickly that fuse runs out. It reminds me of the love, the, the, the zeal that Jesus has for his bride. And uh, to think about the bride of Christ as it's defined in Scripture, that's where we find the saving and sanctifying work of God, the bride of Christ. In John, it's called the, the sheepfold. In 1 Corinthians, it's called God's field. In the Old Testament, it's pictured as God's vineyard. We are the temple of God. That is perhaps the most powerful. The church, as it's defined in Scripture, is called the temple of God. Uh, Where do you go to meet with God? You go to the temple of God. Where is he dwelling in his glorious and awesome presence? In the temple. If people would be saved, if people would have salvation, they go to where he is. The temple of God, which is the people of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So hanging over all of these things is a a couple of of issues. One of those is what what does it mean to be reformed, right? Because uh, Roman Catholics have uh, a, a similar teaching, but it's different in significant ways. Roman Catholic Church says that outside of the church there is no salvation. And and you might say that the church is given an arbitrary power. It's given the power to sort of shift doctrine around. And things can change with the passage of time depending on what the Vatican or any pope or any council might say. To be reformed is different because we're anchored in the, the principle of sola scriptura. So to be reformed is to prize the centrality of the church and sola scriptura. 
The church does not have arbitrary power to redefine things according to the majority. What do most people say or think today? That's that's what we should do in the church. No, that's not how we can do it. We're always finally regulated by Scripture. Article 28 was cited, as I mentioned, in the 1834 secession in Holland. Why? Because the National Dutch Reformed Church was laden with error and heresy. The true church follows Scripture. And when a church neglects the clear teaching of Scripture, faithful Christians are bound to make that known and to take appropriate action. We're bound to follow Scripture when it comes to the church. So let's think then, with all of that being said, as we bring this to a close tonight, the duties that we have as members of the church. The first is to maintain the unity of the church. We're called to maintain the unity of the church, as the confession says. Galatians chapter 5, Paul is talking about the works of the flesh. And he names all of these very obvious sins that we think about with the works of the flesh. The sexual immorality, kind of carousing, partying, drunkenness that we see in the pagan world. But then he has all of these things that deal with divisions within the community. The works of the flesh are enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. That's sandwiched together uh, on either side of those are those more explicit serious sins that, or not serious, but not more serious, but those more explicit sins that we think of. And this shows us how passionate God is that his people would be united in the truth, but then united in love as they are united in the truth. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that we are to live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on to say things that are definitional about the church. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're to maintain the unity of the church, whenever possible, united in the truth. We're to submit ourselves to the doctrine of the church. We must be learning and growing, and doing our best to learn about the faith, to learn about God's word, to grow in our knowledge of it. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You have knowledge, wisdom, and understanding there. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. The last words that the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter says this, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and knowledge. God uses the means of knowledge, how we learn our minds to bring about what? Greater faithfulness. And we are to use our minds as God allows us to bring about a greater faithfulness to our God. Submit ourselves to the doctrine. We're also to submit ourselves to the discipline of the church. To come under the the yoke of Christ, as it says in the confession. Now, the yoke of Christ is a a gospel yoke, which is wonderful. In the community of the church, what do we find? A a liberal and an unending forgiveness, right? We we acknowledge our sin. Uh, We acknowledge our sin to the Lord. We acknowledge our sin to each other. And uh, we bear with one another in love. We forgive. So it's the yoke of Christ, but there is... 
a discipline to which we submit ourselves. First Thessalonians chapter 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Submit to those whom God places over you. Elders and deacons. Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There is, this isn't a sort of a carte blanche freedom that we have in the Christian life. You don't get to define the boundaries of right and wrong. You follow God and his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is talking about this reprehensible situation where this man ended up married to or, or with, sexually involved with his, his father's wife. Paul says, you are to... Uh, expel this man from you so that the Lord may somehow save his soul. That shutting of the kingdom is a process by which God might bring that person back to the faith. If you affirm people in their sin, their sinful lifestyles, that is dangerous for them spiritually. The discipline of the church is to work all those things out. Submit ourselves to the discipline of the church. It's what we do when we take vows to the church, a very important thing, as uh, certainly in our age. Finally, uh, bring about mutual edification and the spiritual health of all. God has gifted all of us in the Spirit in a way that uh, we can especially work for the mutual edification of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and specifically in this congregation. Right? God has gifted you in some way. So that you can serve your brothers and your sisters to work for the mutual, mutual edification of all. Our prayer ought to be that God allows that gifting to come forward so that it might be used at the proper time. In Ephesians 4, as we mentioned before, Paul talks about the, the building up of the body of Christ. There were these gifts that were given to the church. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Given to the church, Why? For the building up of the body of Christ, so that the body of Christ might be healthy, that it might thrive, that we might support one another, which is what he goes on to say later on in verse 16. He says, The whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. There he's talking about individuals in the church who are properly living according to their faith, who have been built up in the faith and the knowledge and the grace of God, and they're working for the mutual edification of all. When it's working properly, Paul says, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body of Christ, the church, builds itself up in love. We can't do this if we remain aloof, if we say, I'm just, I love Jesus, but I can't do the whole church thing. Submit ourselves to the body of Christ and see the importance of it because this is where God has promised his activity. He's promised the special saving and sanctifying activity in the means of grace. What is the extent of this duty? How far does it extend? It extends to death. It extends to death. There is nothing on this earth that gives us an excuse from withdrawing from the church of Jesus Christ um, you know, think of the, the words of the Declaration of Independence. We vow to each other, or we mutually pledge together our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Uh, all those men who signed that document figured that all three of those things might be going away pretty quick. 
their lives, their fortunes, and certainly their widely considered sacred honor. If the country is worth that, and it certainly was at that time, then without a doubt, the church is. It's worth our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Why? Because in remaining faithful to the church to death, we show that we truly believe what we are told in the gospel. We truly believe that it is eternal life that is given to us by grace. That truly Christ has given us power and victory over death. That truly the church will endure to the age to come. So in a world where we don't have to worry about dying for our faith normally, and we pray that it continues that way, what do we do? We still pledge that as death approaches, we will not waver in our faith. That as we feel our mortality uh, working out of our vows and God's work in us is that we continue to remain faithful and and faith-filled with all of the promises that he gives to us in his word so that his saving purposes might be worked out in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise. We pray that you would strengthen us to be true to the faith, to death, that we would love the gospel and love our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Let us end by singing number 443.